This is Bruce Jameson, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Well, we're getting better at some things like technology and decision systems. Um, I think that uh, experience is going to continue to be really, really important. You're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host for this week, Dom Baker from Nelson, BC. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge and news amongst people with a curious fascination for avalanches. Thanks to Wes Gregg for producing this episode. First up today, I have a short conversation with my buddy Garrett Nakamas, aka Gravy. He's the man behind the beautiful intro music that I'm using for the podcast this year. He is also an absolute shredder on a snowboard, who transitioned from sending it for the camera to tailgating at Baldface Lodge. Coming up after that is a conversation with the delightful Dr. Bruce Jameson. So... Uh, welcome back to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Really stoked to have my buddy here, uh, Garrett Nakamis, also known as Gravy. Uh, Gravy, welcome. This is uh, recording this in person. This is awesome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be here. Great to sit with you and have a chat. Right on, buddy. Well, so Gravy is uh, behind the music that has been airing for my episodes this season and beautiful song. And Thank you. Um, Thanks. Part of an album that came out last year. Is that right? Yep. Uh, yep. Finished it and released it last November, That's just a- over a year ago. Right on, and recorded in a cabin in the woods in uh, small town BC, hey? Yep, yeah, exactly. Um, I was living in my buddy's little cabin on his property for the winter, and um, yeah, started my recordings there, and had always been been dreaming of recording an album of my own, and that's kind of was the perfect spot to start it. And that's super cool. It. And you did like all the parts, right? Hey, like all the instruments and all the harmonies and all that stuff and recorded the whole thing yourself and did pretty much everything from what I understand. Yep. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah. And it, it was kind of, um, just, a an attempt to reflect like how I write the music. Like I write solo and a lot of it kind of comes from nature. Like I'll sit by a river and write a song and kind of to, um, translate that into an album like I, I write a lot of different pieces there's some guitar and mandolin and bass lines electric guitar and vocal lines so um, yeah it was it was fun to, to piece it all together and yeah it is it is all me and it was awesome. a project uh, all the production was um, self self-taught and self-executed as well so was a good learning experience i bet well and it sure feels like a cabin in the woods too so you pulled off (laughs) the vibe even with the birds chirping in the background in a few spots there yeah thanks thanks yeah all the um all those like ambient background recordings are um either from around the cabin or some of them are from uh like nearby the rivers where i roped and played a lot of the music so nice yeah it's all it's all of a piece hopefully it comes across that way absolutely well i was really stoked to have you uh here for a chat because uh you are also in the avalanche industry working as a a ski guide or a snowboard guide yeah Um, so i just wanted to get a little bit of a background on like you know where you're from and how did you get into uh riding in the backcountry 
Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I grew up in Colorado, in the U.S., and uh, when I was pretty young, I think six years old, I started snowboarding, and that's also the same year I started playing guitar, so... Um, yeah, very fortunate that I've... that. I don't know where that passion came from at a young age, but I've been able to stick with it for these years. And um, yeah, I graduated high school and uh, kind of felt a um, yeah felt a bit of a push to do the university thing, where really all I wanted to do was snowboard. So I st- <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Started looking at uh, universities near good mountains and. Growing up in Colorado, I knew I'd be pretty spoiled. Like, a, it'd be hard to go ride a small resort on the East Coast, let's say. So I was pretty much looking at um, schools on the West Coast and thought, you know, Washington would be rad. Try to go ride my, Mount Baker and things like that. But um, it just kind of worked out that the most economic option was to come to Canada, actually. And um, so I got into University of British Columbia and moved up and cool yeah basically like I was I was really glad that I went through school and got a degree but the whole time I was just riding a ton so based uh in Vancouver riding in Whistler yeah exactly um yeah UBC has a really awesome like student pass program so um I'd get a Whistler pass every year and then do whatever I could to just ride as much in the winters and then the last uh I took five years to finish university and the last two years of it I lived in Whistler and then just set up my like school schedule so that I just commuted down like two days a week oh perfect yeah (laughs) that's the ski bum dream right there yeah I was super fortunate yeah I got um met some really great people right away in first year who really um pushed me to we all pushed each other to just like try to ride as much as we possibly could and we all graduated but uh yeah we rode a ton (laughs) that's perfect and then how did you did living in whistler kind of get you into riding in the backcountry or were you doing that in colorado or yeah i'd actually in high school um we 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 would go into the backcountry but um kind of classic scenario like had no training no transceiver no no pack even like we just kind of go ride like road access past stuff in Colorado. There's there's a few oh, okay. spots to do that. And my buddies and I were like big park riders, so we just go build jumps. Right. We thought we were being safe, but like looking back on that now, especially with the snowpack in Colorado, like I'm really glad that um yeah, we made it through those days without any accidents, but uh No kidding. Then yeah, moving to um to BC um, yeah, that crew that I got in with in university, um, my good buddy Essex had had a lot of backcountry experience and he had a sled and like, that was kind of the open, the uh, opening of the doors there was, um, he took me under his wing and went out, started getting in the backcountry and he was from the very beginning, he's like, okay, you need to do an AST one and then we can start going out. And right on. So yeah, he kind of gave me the right. in the right direction. Eh? Yeah, exactly. Awesome. And so how did that segue into guiding? Because you're working as a snowboard guide now. Yeah, yeah. Um, Really, like, for me, it was kind of just, I think I just followed the the path of, like, passion for snowboarding. And so in in university, was riding a ton. And then kind of those last couple years in Whistler, I was, um, like, boarding a ton, filming a lot, doing that type of thing. And 
going out with crews and trying to get shots and things like that. Um, but I just felt that living in Whistler, trying to do that scene, it, it just, I knew it wasn't quite the right fit for me. Didn't seem sustainable. Like I was like, I'm not going to make any money doing it this way. But I really knew that I wanted to be on a snowboard as much as I possibly could. So um, that last winter, I went on a road trip, drove through the Kootenays and came and visited um, some good buddies. Jared oh, was yeah. a patroller here at Whitewater and ripped around Whitewater with him. And I was like, oh, this this feels like a scene where I can come and just live as a passionate snowboarder and not be stuck in the weird scene of you know, on the coast of, there's a lot of energy there and it's awesome. But for me, I was just looking to, it's quite, quite busy and intense. Hey, feeling compared to the Kootenays where you got two small chairlifts and not too many lines and whatever. Yeah. 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 Just seemed like a place that I could, um, really live for the passion of it. Awesome. And, um, yeah, another good buddy, um, of ours, mutual friend of ours, Dan Pichette suggested, uh, that I should, hit up Baldface Lodge and just see if they needed any workers. And um, I went on their website and they were hiring housekeepers. And so applied, got the job as a housekeeper. Nice. And um, yeah, at that time I, I didn't really have any intention of becoming a, a guide. Uh, it was just more an avenue for me to, to be a part of the snowboarding world. Yeah, very cool. So yeah. did that kind of pique your interest on, hey, this could be a path that we could follow for a while? Yeah, for sure. And and then, um, yeah, I'll, I guess I'll kind of just keep mentioning the, the, the people in my life that steered me in the direction. Um, as soon as I moved to Nelson, I met Niall, Niall Mulkey Chose, um, really good guy. And he was a guy at Baldface. We both worked forestry together and... Um, yeah, I I let him know I just got a housekeeping job at Baldface, and he was so hyped for me. And he's like, "Oh, it's on, dude!" Like, um, told me his story. He came in as a dishwasher there, and uh, very quickly became a guide. And um, yeah, had just the most epic attitude and crazy strong snowboarder, and really good with people, and um, right. made a big impression on a lot of people, including myself. And for sure, it, it was. Uh, Actually, I remember this moment, like riding with Niall and seeing how good of a rider he was, how how uh, strong he ripped. I was like, "Oh, if this guy is a guide, maybe maybe I could do this." Like, it's not just holding people's hands who are flailing on a powder day. Like, yeah, being a snowboard guide can mean like absolutely ripping and inspiring someone who's out there to have a mountain experience. Oh, that's awesome! And it seems like Baldface has that really unique uh, demographic of clientele for snowboarders in general which is unique but also just people that shred totally yeah yeah i really i think it was it's i don't know just one of those things where i think life led me on that path to to end up at Baldface, and um i don't know if i would have gone that route into guiding otherwise but uh yeah it's a a great place for, for what i like to do on a snowboard and um yeah so originally getting into guiding was just a way to keep riding and then um the more the more i'd get out with people who i really respect in the mountains the more it kind of sparked my appetite to like learn and grow and learn about snowpack and terrain management and you know all, all the things and yeah get some mentorship for people with less experience and yeah it sounds like then that turned you down the path of taking courses and that sort of thing exactly yeah yeah then started doing the courses and um 
yeah, just, just hungry for the knowledge. But really, it, in the end, it still comes back to just, um, yeah, just the riding for me. It's always been the biggest passion. And sure. it was a, kind of a new way to grow my riding, you know, like once you're, you know, you're hitting jumps and you're kind of doing the same tricks or once you've, you know, decided you want to hit rails in the park anymore, you know, like it's it's just a new avenue to progress. Like it's pretty natural for really strong riders to start moving into riding lines in the backcountry. And sure. um, so, yeah, the the hunger for the knowledge kind of came from that. Very cool. And to tie that all back to music, I hear Bald Face has quite a music scene up there. Yeah, yeah, totally, man. Yeah, as soon as I started working up there, uh, I, I felt very at home. They've got an awesome setup, lots of guitars, a sweet jam spot, and um, a lot of really talented musicians come through. And uh, Jeff Pensiero um, has created like an awesome culture up there. He's a guitarist himself. We, we jam a lot. And uh, nice. yeah, it's, it's a really cool vibe. There's, you know, I think they go together really well, like a day of snowboarding and you just want to come home and have yeah. a drink and hang by the fire and strum a guitar it's a oh yeah every yeah. lodge needs to have a guitar in it for totally sure. <laughs> yeah they really go hand in hand absolutely that's cool so you've got um some mechanized work in the winter and then you're doing some ski tour garden as well yeah uh yeah as well um i i work at ice creek lodge um in the valhallas um and uh at this stage um with my certifications i'm kind of just doing work there as a practicum and um and uh working with russ under his mentorship um i've done quite a bit of like hut keeping there as well but um it's definitely a direction that i want to grow um a lot of the mentors that i really look up to do mechanized and non-mechanized work i think it's it's a really good balance it's a good way to stay fit um physically and mentally like totally i think it's really stimulating mentally to put together a day where you as a guide are you know you're sometimes the crux of your day is on your up track yeah sure and, um you don't really get that same uh that same program in a snowcat yeah, it's two totally different ways of approaching the mountain too hey totally the sheer number of laps you're doing in the cat will give you certain challenges versus having to make your way through terrain on the way up as you say yeah. and being exposed to features for so much longer it's like a totally different dynamic for your day hey? totally totally yeah and then working the flow you know like in a day of snow cat skiing um you know the cat once when the guests hop in the cat they're kind of just doing their thing. You're chatting, they're eating lunches and whatever, but and you, they just hop out magically at the top and they yeah. can ride again. But um, yeah, you really got to factor in, you know, guests abilities and, um, and their fitness and even just their comfort um, all day long when you're, when you're non-mechanized guiding. Oh, so. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Very good, man. So more courses down the pipeline for you coming up this year? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, last year I, I finished my, um, CAA operations level two course, nice, um, Congrats. which yeah, thanks. It's awesome. Um, yeah. Finding that it's, it's really cool to apply that, um, have more of like a forecasting mindset, um, contribute a lot more in the guide meetings. Now I'm not just, uh, for sure. Not just a low tail guide. Got a few more things to say. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and uh, and then the next step would be, um, yeah, I, I intend to do the CSGA level two, and that'll set me up to start leading in a mechanized context. And then cool. 
after that, the plan is to uh, apply for the ACMG Assistant Guide Program. And uh, Awesome. Then yeah. you can get some more ski touring work and that sort of thing. Totally. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Great. Well, I definitely wish you well on that path and super stoked to be playing your music at the start of uh, each episode. It's awesome. It's a good vibe for the for the podcast and uh i like the fact that you are an avalanche person and a passionate rider and stuff like that it fits with everything i think it's good awesome yeah thanks i appreciate it yeah i was really really stoked when you reached out and wanted to use some music and nice yeah dude. it's an honor for me so right on well cheers to that good to have you gravy awesome thanks Dom. yeah cheers cheers and now for a quick word from our sponsors Additional support for today's episode is provided by Athletic Greens. I've literally been taking AG1 by Athletic Greens every day since May, and it's helped me feel great. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens because I was tired of losing track of what vitamins and supplements I had already taken. I'd lose them all the time. I'd forget them at home. AG1 has made it super simple to have a sustainable nutritional insurance routine. I've been benefiting from taking AG1 by having better gut health, a more optimized immune system, more energy and focus, and better recovery. I've found it's the best option for easy, optimal nutrition out there. All I do is take one scoop of AG1, put it into 12 ounces of water, shake it up and drink it down, boom, I'm done in 30 seconds, and I'm hydrating. I benefit from absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help me start my day right. It's time for you to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance that your body needs. Additional support for this episode is provided by Six Point Engineering. Six Point Engineering out of Nelson, British Columbia specializes in engineering, design, avalanche risk assessments, mountain safety services, and project management. Greg Johnson and his team of engineers and avalanche professionals have a unique skill set that includes hazard assessment, infrastructure design, avalanche forecasting, and avalanche control programs. They serve the oil and gas, transportation, hydroelectric, mining, ski area, and land development industries. If you're scratching your head over some difficult questions for your next project in the mountains, look no further than Six Point Engineering. You can find out more at sixpointeng.com. Check out our interview with Greg back on episode 5.19 to hear more. Well, somehow it's already mid-February. Not quite sure how that happened. It's been an eventful season so far. Many regions around North America are dealing with a deep, persistent weak layer. This type of weak layer can go through cycles of avalanche activity, and it can be tempting to step out when things quiet down. Managing a deep, persistent weak layer requires patience and discipline, something that can be hard to find when that sweet line is at the tips of your skis, board or sled. I find I manage that temptation in the planning stage of a ski trip. When the snowpack is the question, 
the terrain is the answer. There is so much snowpack and avalanche information available out there, so pay attention to the specific conditions in your area. Maybe this is the year to explore some new, scenic, low-consequence terrain, or have fun making pow turns in the forest. Perhaps the Sendy lines are going to have to wait until the spring, or next year. Well, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Bruce Jameson. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm uh, feeling really fortunate today to be joined by Dr. Bruce Jameson. Um, Bruce Jameson, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, th- thanks, Dom. This is uh, a great opportunity. I'm just back from Colorado, and I was uh, listening to a bunch of the Avalanche Hour podcast, going right back to the first and second seasons uh, uh, during my drive, and uh, so... Yeah, this is a great opportunity. Thanks. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure is all mine. And there's some really great episodes there, hey, in the early seasons. I uh, think Caleb's been putting out a great show for years. So if folks out there haven't listened to some of those, they should check them out. There's some good stories. Awesome. Well, uh, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind giving us a bit of your background to start. You know, where are you from and how did you get into backcountry skiing and how did that lead into a a 40-year career in snow science? So I grew up in Ottawa and did a little bit of skiing and ski racing uh, there. And um, then partway through university, I did a degree in math, computer science, and physics at the University of Waterloo. I um, I made a summer trip uh, west and kind of fell in love in the mountains and made it back to finish off my final year and then uh, came west again. And uh, I was hooked. I was uh uh, so since uh, 1975, I spent uh, most of my time in uh, Western Canada. I, um, yeah, I did a whole bunch of uh, outdoor courses and climbing courses and whatever, and ski instructing, and um, worked for a bunch of outdoor schools, both uh, internationally and then after rambling around and um, in 19. 19- Summer of 1980, I came back to Canada and applied for two ski areas to uh, work in uh, avalanche control at uh, at Big White and Fernie. Uh, first interview was at uh, Fernie, and uh, I had a um, uh, quite a remarkable interview there with Heiko Socher, who was the uh, operations manager. He was a, a man of few words, but after a short interview at the bottom, he said, uh, "Let's go up and up top and." Uh, talked to the avalanche forecaster, uh, Dave Akins, and uh, uh, Heiko got around the ski hill on a on a logging machine, and uh, so he, a skitter, so he was driving the skitter, there was only one seat, and I was hanging on the outside of the skitter, and uh, he was, uh, a really loud thing, he was shouting at me, so, you want to work with avalanches? And I said, yeah! <laughs> and we could hardly hear each other on the way up, and, uh, but anyways, he got up and dropped me off, and I had my interview with uh, Dave Akins at the top of the Fernie Ski Hill, and, uh, and then I got a phone call a little bit later and started there in December 1980, and uh, so uh, that was great. To uh, I worked there for five years at the Fernie Ski Hill and took my, I already had a level one at that point, um, from actually from the States, and the, they had a pro course at that time, and then I took a, a level two after about two or three years at the Fernie Ski Area, and um, yeah, um, and then uh, after that, uh, my uh, my wife was vocationally frustrated in uh, in Fernie and uh, wanted to move to Calgary, so we moved to Calgary, and I was kind of lost for a little bit. And then um, the uh, 
Nishkiski ski area. I wasn't open to the public yet, but they were making preparations for the Olympics. And uh, so I applied and I, I got the job there and there was, uh, I was the only blaster on the on the program there, so I guess I think I was called the assistant forecaster, but I was the only only blaster, and uh, so we had a I, I had a good a good winter there, and then um, I uh, yeah was looking for um, something to do, and I thought about grad school, uh, and because uh, I was in the big city of Calgary, and there were options there, and went to the University of Calgary, started knocking on doors, and tried environmental science, and that didn't work, and then I tried physics, and that didn't work, and then I tried civil engineering and uh, uh, met uh, my future supervisor, Dr. Colin Johnston, and uh, it, it was, uh, that was where the, the science and the research kind of started for me. Well, that's quite the road and started with a heck of an interview by the sounds of it. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. And so you got your PhD, I think, at that point. Is that correct? Yeah, so uh, I took a bunch of qualifying courses. I Because of my math and physics, it didn't quite what they were looking for in engineering. So I took a few qualifying courses, um, and then uh, I got into the master's program. Uh, I took that, and then I was a... Um, and Colin Johnson got me involved in the re- applying for research grants right away. And that was, uh, in hindsight, it was a, a, a wonderful thing to expose a young graduate student to, was uh, uh, how do you raise the money for research. And uh, so then after the my master's, I did... Um, uh, th- three years as a research associate, uh, and uh, by that time we had uh, uh, um, I'd met uh, Mike Wigley, uh, Colin Johnson, and I went to a conference in Avalanche Conference in Edmonton, and uh, uh, I presented there and didn't know anything about presenting. But uh, then when uh, Mike Wigley approached us there, and that uh, opened up all kinds of doors, and uh, so we started the first uh, research program, doing some field work at Mike Wigley Helicopter Skiing. And uh, that was, and then we applied for another three-year grant after that. And um, NSERC, the federal government, came back to us and said, "There's one problem with your research application: you don't have any graduate students." And uh, it was too late to apply for a, a PhD at that time. It was end of August or whatever to start a PhD program in September. And the uh, between uh, Colin Johnson and the department head, they make everything happen. And like it was, seemed like weeks later, I was in the PhD program, in spite of it being uh, like four months after the deadline. <laughs> and uh, so um, there I was. And so the, the next uh, three-year um, grant that we had was a, um, yeah, that, that funded me for my PhD. And again, we did field work with uh, um, Mike Wheeler Helicopter Skiing and uh, CMH uh, joined in. It was at the Bobby Burns. At a, yeah, we started up in the Bobby Burns there and started to have a few research uh, technicians um, uh, help with the field work, and I was back and forth between Blue River and uh, Bobby Burns, and uh, yeah, it, it was great. It was a really a wonderful combination of interacting with the practitioners and sitting in on the morning and evening meetings, the operational meetings, you know, and if you, it kept you really grounded in what mattered to the practitioners. I've, I, it's one thing not to jump around here too much, but it's uh, something that I've always appreciated from your approach with um, snow science and research is that you have always remained grounded to what the practitioners find useful and, and, and what's really practical. I recall seeing you at the CAA spring meetings and you were getting asked some question about something or other and you gave your answer, which was, of course, well articulated and, and quite clear. But then you said, but I'm not the practitioner. What do you guys think? And I always thought that that approach was just really well balanced. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think the close 
uh, connection with operations and practitioners was uh, a real key to the success of ASARC. Um, I mean, we went to the morning and evening meetings for the uh, operations, uh, and uh, we had research technicians who had an operational background uh, working with the graduate students. And as ASARC grew, we had more, more in those. And um, initially, the two field stations at the Bobby Burns and Mike Wiggly helicopter skiing, and then um, Mike Wiggly helicopter skiing and uh, Rogers Pass, which was great because we had saw both the uh, highways operations and the uh, backcountry operation, the backcountry forecasting. Um, so the the connection to operations and practitioners was wonderful. Uh, as I said, the um, the research technicians who worked in many cases one on one with the uh, uh, graduate students and. Uh, they brought the operational, the practical stuff, plus the morning meetings, and plus my, uh, uh, I was just, uh, my connection from working at Fernie and Nikiska and whatever was very much operational and practical, and uh, uh, and in hindsight, I mean, if it had been a, um, I wasn't any good at theory, and um, what was I good out there was out there poking at the snow and uh, working with a bunch of, I don't know, bright, curious uh, people uh, interested in um, snow and uh, so our graduate students and the research technicians they would do 60 plus days in the field and uh, that was uh, I think unique it was one of the things that made ASARC uh, so special um, was all the, all the field time and uh, probably goes to show uh, why so many of your graduates are employed within the industry in in pretty hands-on technical roles as opposed to you know more upper level research type roles you have uh, graduates working at Avalanche Canada and for um, various different consulting firms. Uh, yeah, and the um, and the research technicians have also uh, gone on. I mean, we uh, in lots of chats like this, we tend to focus on the what the graduate students have done, which is great. I'm really proud of that um, the graduate program and where they went and what they're doing now, and I keep in touch with them. But the the research technicians. And if you were watching them doing a day in the in the field in the field pit, you couldn't tell the difference between a graduate student and a research technician. Uh, they worked very equally in the pits. Now, when it came to the presentations, then it was the graduate students taking the lead. And when it came to planning the field work, it was the graduate students taking the lead. But uh, actually, in the field pit, poking around at the snowpack, uh, they were they worked like equals. And uh, uh, that uh, I think that was another strength of the ASARC program. Yeah. So the and the graduate research technicians have both gone on to uh, I, I think really impressive, and a lot of the research technicians are now guides and operations managers, and uh, and the graduate students have gone on to um, all kinds of good things, you know, and Avalanche Canada and consulting, and uh, so I'm I'm really uh, really jazzed with uh, uh, watching where they've gone with their careers. It must be really satisfying as the leader of that program to see where your your graduates and uh, technicians have gone. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really uh, rewarding. I just every time I see their name pop up somewhere, I think yes, yes. That's awesome. Great. Well, um, we we've kind of danced around the ASARC program a bit here. Now, I was just wondering if you could give us an overview of what that that was and um, how long you ran the program for, and sort of what the the technicians and the graduate students came came away with. So, in the transition, as I was finishing my PhD and. We were starting to hire uh, research technicians, and uh, that'd be 97, and then starting in the winter of 98, uh, we had um, uh, uh, two graduate students, and um, and I was in a supervisory role, and I was in the in the field a lot, uh, and because that's what I wanted to do, that's what I was good at, it was, and we 
covered a wide variety of topics. I mean, we uh, snowpack instability test was a big part of what we did, and um, you know, it's, and the propagation saw test, and the, some of the improvements to the uh, compression test, uh, fracture character, they were all a big part of what we did. But we also um, we looked at uh, snowpack warming. Uh, we looked at statistical runout estimation. There were, th- I guess, four graduate students who worked on statistical runout estimation. Um, and, and that was summer work, which was, uh, I think, really, really um, fit really well. And with winter work, there was always the conflict with courses and whatever. And I tried to cram my teaching into the fall terms. And the, uh, and the graduate students tried to put their uh, courses into the fall term. But uh, sometimes there were conflicts with uh, winter courses. Um, but uh, we worked on oh, uh, persistent weak layers uh, and uh, deep slab avalanches. Um, um, there were a couple of projects on warming and uh, um, the uh, really big dry slab avalanches. Uh, remote triggering um, was another uh, big topic. And uh, we had great times with uh, chasing wolves around the mountains. And uh, yeah, so there was one little... Uh, first time there with the f- first graduate students and we were trying to get wumps and we were in contact with the uh, wardens at the time from Banff Park and we were kind of based at Rogers Pass and they said, oh, we got a cycle of wumps happening. So we uh, jumped into various cars and one person went in and got a seismic data logger at, uh, you know, from Calgary and we went out there and we chased wumps for three days and um, we would basically... Uh, go into a meadow, walk into a meadow, and if it whooped, we would go into the next meadow and set up our seismic array, and uh, and then try and and then we failed for two and a half days straight. We we never got any of the second meadows where we had our instruments set up uh, would go, and then and we were pretty much at the end of the wolf cycle. We were just having a really hard time getting anything to go, and then that kind of at the end of the third day. Um, we again we got one meadow to wolf and we set up the stuff in the other one and there was this seismic array uh, recording the, one of the guys walked into the, uh, the the meadow with his snowshoes on and we, we were all standing around the edges you know and, and we felt this wolf and there was the complete silence when the, the guy in charge went over to the seismic array and he calls out we got it we got it we got it you know and it was like one of these moves from the ghostbusters you know we got one we got one <laughs> we, we'd finally captured the wolf and were able to measure the speed of it and that started the great controversy because it was so slow and uh, people a lot of people didn't think the uh, cracks and weak layers could move so slowly but uh, uh, that that started a really a wonderful uh, line of research and wow that's super interesting so you just determined based on the wolf speed the uh, theoretical speed of crack propagation then yeah, so there was a uh, yeah, and there was a collapse, and um, and it was really slow. It was down around twenty meters per second, and there were a few um, articles estimating based on shear only, with no collapse, that the speed would be hundreds of meters per second, up to one person even suggested a, a thousand meters per second, um, and. Um, so anyways, we had this one credible piece of data that had said it, this weak layer uh, was down around uh, 20 meters per second. And there was a really spotty bit of research uh, uh, showing slow speeds. Um, and yeah, but but uh, not related to avalanches, but just showing slow uh, snowquakes. Uh, they were sometimes called in the far north up in the Arctic where they had depth ore layers. And uh, uh, there was one little incident where uh, two guys were, uh, I think uh, they were nine kilometers apart, they were talking on the radio, and um, a snowquake ran through the camp, and one guy 
who's can't, just ran his camp and he's on the radio and he says, holy shit. And the, there's a little pause and then the other guy says, has an exclamation as well. And they, based on that timing between the two, the, the snowquake running through their camps, they realized the speed. And that was one of the other um, records that cracks could move as slowly as uh, 20 meters per second. And uh, that started the whole line of research. And it's just really been resolved in recent years with uh, Joanne Gomes' research that... Uh, uh, cracks start slow, a lot of cracks start slow with a collapse and whatever, and then after a few tens of meters, they tend to accelerate, and uh, then we get into what we now call super shear, and uh, that's where these um, really high speeds, like hundreds of meters per second, happen. But uh, yeah, so our poking around in the meadows at uh, Banff National Park up at uh, Bow Summit was uh, was where it all started. That's incredible. Really amazing to think that those snowquakes, like giant wumps in the far north, would travel that many kilometers. Because it just goes to show yeah. how you can get such propagation over large terrain with a big persistent weak layer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's incredible. So you guys did, you know, over 100 published papers and 70 papers at various different ISSWs, so much uh, publication. Is there anything that really stands out to you, you know, that, that you're really proud of that you guys worked on? No, I think the, the, the connection to applied research uh, is what stands out. It was really diverse. I mean, we worked in a lot of things, and um, certainly snowpack instability tests were a big part of it. But uh, the diversity and the, uh, and the connection to operations and doing work that was uh, useful. And, uh, and during that process, we started to make uh, videos. I saw a video from Montana State where someone doing a presentation, and they actually put it online. And I thought, ooh we got to do that. Uh, and so I talked to the graduate students and uh, we started to make videos of our presentations. Often when we come back from a conference, we'd have the PowerPoint already and then we'd record a presentation of that and then make that, uh, put that online. And that's where it started and um, started making all these videos. So I, I think what stands out to me was the, uh, you know, the diversity of our field studies and, and maybe even the lack of theory. There was a little bit of theory, but there wasn't very much. And then the, uh, the applied science and the connection to uh, practical operational stuff, the stuff that was uh, relevant. And uh, there was a real appetite to it from our, our supporters. Uh, they were really interested in the practical stuff. And, uh, and that's what we were good at. Uh, and I wasn't much of a theoretician, so when, <laughs> so uh, it was kind of a, a magic combination there. And then the, the appetite for practical research uh, from the, uh, I think, the really wonderful supporters, you know, in the ski industry and um, especially in the ski industry. And uh, yeah, and then kind of meshed with what we were good at. And the, the field studies attracted some amazing, uh, bright, curious uh, students. And um, and the communication side of um, it's not good enough to publish a paper in a scientific journal. You've got to be able to, um, you know, go to the CAA spring meetings. You've got to go to the operational trainings. And we were just at the start of the season, we were traveling around to a whole bunch of different operations, doing sessions and whatever. And um, my graduate students and in a few cases, the research technicians were doing the presentations. And that was, yeah, um, I think that was a strength of the program. Yeah, really, the program attracted. I was just amazed. I was um, the the strength of the applications that I was turning away were just amazing. You know, I was at kind of at capacity. All I could supervise and all I could, uh, all I had funding for, and uh, and yet there were so yeah. Well, we got a really bright bunch of people, and they uh, and they either arrived as really good communicators or they became good communicators because before we went out, we would do. Uh, dry runs of our presentations and we'd be quite 
critical of our presentations, you know, it's not your target audience not going to get that, you know, <laughs> you know, the, the first year ski patrollers, they didn't get what you just said there, go back and try it again. And, and so before they, we hit the road to go out and do presentations, we do usually two sessions of people giving their presentations and we would critique yeah, the presentations with a particular emphasis on, um, um, reaching the uh, the practitioner, the person out there where they're working risky areas or highways or guiding or whatever, that uh, you really got to talk to people if you're going to go out there and uh, get their time during your start of season training session or during the uh, CA spring meetings. I think that's actually a particularly unique thing about your volume of research is that you have uh, targeted it to quite a wide spectrum of, of user groups. Like for example, I used to show a video in AST courses where you're explaining the compression test. Um, and this is a pretty entry level course that we're teaching. And then you've done courses or pardon me, you've got videos that are, uh, quite technical as well. Um, like this past spring, for example, I just did the CA level three course and I can't tell you how many times I watched your videos about communicating likelihood and probability, um, vulnerability and consequence and all this sort of thing. Uh, so the, the full spectrum is represented there and I think that they're all really well understood by their intended target audience. So that's pretty unique, I think. Uh, right. And so there are often two versions. There was the, the paper for the scientific journal, and then there was the, uh, the the communication to a wide audience of practitioners. And at all levels, from the, I think, the entry level to ski patrol to the, as you say, the person taking a level three and whatever, we uh, we tried to hit all those. on. Um, and some presentations were better for the entry level ski patroller, and others were better, um, uh, you know, for someone taking a level three. But uh yeah, we really uh, worked hard on um, on reaching th- those audiences. It's fair to say that your publications have also kind of followed the same track. Like you're, say, looking at your two most recent publications, you've done Avalanche Craft with Terry Palchuk, which is more geared towards recreationalists. And then you've also worked on the planning methods for assessing and mitigating snow avalanche risk, which is like a really technical manual. I was wondering about how does your approach differ when you're um, you're preparing something like this? Obviously, they're quite large projects to write a book. Um, so how does your approach differ based on that target audience and say maybe the level of complexity? Well, uh, identifying the target audience and keeping it foremost at every stage um, so, uh, yeah, for the the planning methods book, um, yeah, we really wanted to do a, a compilation, and, um, and it's fairly introductory, but it's also fairly broad, uh, and it's being used by a few universities now. And I think because it is broad, and because we, um, and we had a, that's kind of aimed at more at the consultants and the uh, practitioners who work in consulting, um, and. Yeah, so keeping the target audience in mind is uh, is foremost at uh, at everything, and uh, and, and getting feedback. Uh, so we really uh, worked hard to get feedback, and uh, so that you'll see uh, the variety of authors at the uh, that are co-authors of the chapters in the planning methods book, and uh, so we they were tasked with uh, I don't know ripping apart and telling me. <laughs> Section 2.3, that needs a rewrite. That's garbage, you know, and, and that's what I wanted. Same, that same uh, spirit of like critical uh, review that you carried on right from the start in the ASARC course, by the sounds of it. Yep. Uh, critical feedback and putting the uh, target audience uh, right up front and center and never lose sight of that. 
I wanted to ask you a question as well, Bruce. Uh, you've been involved in investigating some avalanche accidents over the years. And one that stood out to me was in uh, Kangaksulujiak. I'm sure I butchered the pronunciation of that, pardon me, in, uh, in Quebec. Um, it's not your typical avalanche accident. And I was just wondering if you could give us a bit of an overview of that, uh, that story and sort of what you learned from that. Um, yeah, that was, um, uh, that was amazing. I mean, it was, um, uh, as a lot of avalanches with multiple fatalities is, it, it's kind of heart-wrenching on one side and, um, it's also, I don't know, uh, important to understand and to, um, share in this case, uh, through the, the coroner's inquiry. Um, but, um, so it was, a a New Year's Eve party in, um, 1999, and a small town, and it was a planned town. People from really small little villages had been brought into the town uh, years earlier. So, and the town was at the base of a hill, which got uh, wind loaded. They had built a school at the uh, base of the hill, about um, 20 or 40 meters from the base of the hill. I think it was 40 meters from the base of the hill, and the hill was 85, 86 meters high. And as they were Things were winding down about uh, 1.45 in the morning. Some people were outside getting into their trucks and snowmobiles to go home, and um, other people were still inside. And the um, uh, the avalanche uh, released on the slope right above the school, which was functioned as a community center, and hit the school. Uh, uh, nine people were killed, about half inside and half outside. And um, there were some really young kids, I don't know, four or five, six years old killed in that one. It was just totally uh, um, heart-wrenching. And and then in the uh, the investigation was quite uh, um, fascinating. Uh, we got to attend the, the town meetings where they um, spoke in the local language and then they would uh, translate to us and we were going door to door and um, talking to the neighbors who lived at the base of the hills about the history of avalanches and also about the nursing station which we uh, just about missed or um, that uh, there had been a previous incident where an avalanche had come up to the school and the uh, the young kid who was involved got taken to the nursing station now so we uh, we had tracked down records of um, People having their, you know, their boats parked in their backyard and being hit by avalanches. But uh, then we found out about this one where it had hit the uh, the school kid um, and uh, on the back steps of the school, on the slopes, or the steps of the school facing the slope. And um, he wasn't fully buried, but uh, had a trip to the nursing station. Once we got that record, we started to piece together the history of avalanches on that slope. And uh, so I made three trips up to Kangir Sulujwak, and uh, uh, the last one was for the inquiry, and the, the first one was with uh, Mark Ledwich for the start of the investigation. And, um, uh, and yeah, it was, it was totally uh, atypical. I mean, the, um, they had some, I don't know, some kind of a fishing harpoon or whatever, which they turned upside down to do some of the probing with, and that was all decided by the locals. Um, the the architect of the school who arrived before Mark Ledwich and I arrived, he um, um, he told the earth moving machines to move snow and build a deflection berm so they could um, um, to protect uh, some of the buildings because they didn't know if there was another avalanche. Um, the start zone was quite well cleared out, but they didn't know that at the time. So they, without any avalanche expertise, they built a deflection berm. 
um, by the uh, architect who arrived on the scene. Um, and uh, yeah, and then we got there and, and the history of avalanches. I mean, I recall one time we, we were talking to one guy and we said, nope, nope, never seen anything like that, never seen snow. And we went over to his neighbors and he said that the guy we'd just come from had had his, um, the boat parked in his backyard damaged by an avalanche. And then we went back to the first person and said, oh, your neighbor says you, you had a boat damaged by an avalanche. And he says, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you know, and that's what you mean. Yeah, okay, yeah. So we uh, piecing together the history of avalanches was, uh, was quite fascinating. We felt like a detective. Is, uh, um, yeah, no kidding, because I guess if you are investigating an avalanche in, a, say, a commercial guided operation or a recreational accident, there's always some level of comprehension or awareness of avalanches, whereas in this situation, they've obviously been affected by avalanches over history, but they don't have that same degree of awareness that, uh, say, somebody else might that's more recreationally involved. So it must have been really interesting and challenging to uh, to piece together some of that information. Yeah, yeah. No, it was a it was a fascinating process, and uh, working with a wide variety of people and uh, uh, consultants from Quebec and uh, uh, in the latter stages and the and the inquiry, it it all uh, yeah, um, fascinating process. Um, on the subject of uh, investigation, you've done uh, various different research on on avalanche sizes and our our ability to estimate avalanche size. I remember taking part in a study that you did years ago where you sent out avalanche pictures and we had to rate them based on size and with or without using half sizes. And in that vein of thought, I remember a slight controversy when um, Selkirk Mountain Experience put a size five avalanche on the InfoX, and we we'd sort of always operated under the assumption that Canada's mountains weren't big enough to produce size fives, um, rightly or wrongly. Uh, and then you were involved in a really interesting investigation of that avalanche with Rudy uh, to determine that, in fact, it was a size five. I was wondering if you could tell us about that investigation. Uh, y- yes, and I'm, <laughs> I've, as we talk here today, I've just come back from the, the Colorado saw where I talked about estimating avalanche size. And in a couple of weeks, I'm going down to the Elk Valley saw where I'm also talking about estimating avalanche size uh, from a, a different perspective. But again, that's a recurring theme in some of, uh, some of the recent uh, work I've done. So I think we have a tendency to underestimate avalanche size, and it comes partly from uh, a guiding operation where they're often estimated from a distance where you're you're flying back to base and you look through the frosty window of the helicopter and a kilometer away you see an avalanche. Well, um, we know it's a really quite a strong tendency there to an underestimation bias there on the size. And then when we um, we, we, we do get up close, there's still, a, I think, an underestimation bias. And in our um, Canadian definition of a size five, there's this word, it's the largest snow avalanche is known. And that has led some people to believe that the um, uh, uh, you can't have size fives in Canada. And uh, uh, one interesting story during the winters of 1980 and 1981, when uh, Peter Shearer and Paul Anhorn were, and, and Jim Bay were out there um, collecting the field data to um, develop the uh, the avalanche size scale, um, they, um, two of their avalanches they classified as size five uh, at Rogers Pass. And since then, um, we've gotten on this um, mindset or um, tunnel vision or whatever that there aren't any size fives in Canada. And uh, so when, when Rudy reported the size five, and uh, it got a lot of attention, and uh, I think um, 
spurred some really good discussion that uh, yes, we really do have size fives in Canada, and uh, um, and we do have a tendency to underestimate the the size of avalanches, and uh, so I'm, I'm I'm quite keen on uh, on the topic and uh, more objective methods of estimating uh, avalanche size. I mean, when we're getting down around size two, we often think about can a strong skier ski out of it. And if a strong skier can ski out of it, then it must be a size one. Well, well, that's false. You know, I mean, you have to look at the burial potential. You have to look at the damage potential, not whether a strong skier can ski out of it. Uh, so we have various, uh, I don't know, misconceptions uh, about size, um, everywhere from a size two up to a size five that have contributed, I think, quite a bit to uh, um, underestimating is pretty norm. And I, uh, it's pretty common, and I worry about as this information gets out there and we share more and more online uh, about avalanche sizes, that, um, uh, and, and the public is starting to read these now because we have this great uh, sharing through the Mountain Information Network, etc., that um, I worry whether size underestimation is uh, causing people to underestimate the hazard. Oh, interesting point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you were talking about objective me methods of measuring size. So, of course, we have within that size classification scale um, tonnage of snow, or volume of snow as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you measured uh, Rudy's avalanche there to, to determine that it was, in fact, a size 5? Because you were very thorough with those methods. I remember a really good presentation about that. Well... Uh, uh, Rudy and his guides were very thorough. They went out in the field and they, um, um, well, it was, it was too deep to uh, probe, but they did the difference in elevations with a GPS plus their uh, visual estimation. But uh, they did the area and there was, the main deposit was uh, 17 hectares. And then there was another piece of the track where, and that has forest up to 200 years old had been destroyed. And then there was another piece in the track where they run wider than usual and destroyed another three hectares of forest. And if you look at the what could have been destroyed where the avalanche was running frequently um, off Mount Tumbledown, then uh, that was another 20 hectares. So it was spot on. It was 40 hectares. It nicely met the criteria for this, uh, uh, for 40 hectares, which is um, destroying 40 hectares, of, could destroy 40 hectares of forest. And so I think looking at the at the mass and the uh, and the volume, uh, and in Canada we tend to use the mass, the, the European... Um, avalanche size classification, which I, I quite like. I think it's got a lot of fresh ideas in there. Is uh, They're using volume, and we seem to do a better job estimating volume than we do mass because we don't have to estimate density. Yeah, the density is a tough one because you think, like, you know, from a distance – it's it's hard to to guess obviously the density of the deposit so then it means you get to get boots on the ground and then i've always kind of had the question of should i be estimating the density of the start zone because there's some potential to calculate volume of the start zone um, and then extrapolate based on that because of all the sintering and the smashing up of these particles they're going to be so much more densely packed together in the deposit so i don't know if you have any thoughts on if it's best to because very often you'll only actually see the start zone right as you're talking about from a distance um, based on a google earth polygon you can get a decent say area and then if you multiply that by the um, estimated crown depth perhaps averaged over like a few different readings do you think that's an accurate way of measuring it uh, I think for the smaller avalanches, that works. That the uh, the the mass that leaves the start zone arrives in the uh, in the deposition zone in the runout zone. But as you get into uh, larger and larger avalanches, there's a lot of entrained on the way down, and uh, the the we end up with a 
starts on avalanches releasing with two or three hundred kilograms per cubic meter, and then we get deposit densities, you know, 450, 500, and the wet ones get up to 550 or so. Um, and uh, so um, both through entrainment and through uh, uh, compaction, and uh, and we, as you say, we rarely measure the deposit density. I mean, if I've done just a handful of big avalanches where you, you're out there on a four meter deposit and you dig down and with great effort, one meter and take a few density samples and, and, and that's it. And, uh, and most people haven't done any of that. And I've only done a few, but, uh, Peter Scherer did a bunch and he recorded those and it's been uh, really useful for, uh, Peter's measurements have been really useful for helping us, uh, uh, estimate deposit density, um, based on the, on the size of the avalanche. So here's a question for you. This you're aware probably that this uh, podcast is based in the U.S. and um, I think about eighty percent of the listeners are Americans. So for our American listeners in Canada, here we use a destructive size scale um, relative to what we estimate the destructive potential of the avalanches. Uh, in the U.S., you use that as well as a relative scale. So do you think in Canada we could benefit from combining the two and having a relative scale, as in how much of the start zone's actually been released? in addition to our destructive scale? Um, as a compliment, um, and, and I, I'd rather practitioners answer that question, but there is a proposal right now before the technical committee, as the chair of the technical committee has been reported, that um, um, should Canada uh, also uh, supplement the destructive scale with the uh, relative size scale? Uh, and that's before the technical committee right now, and uh, I think that's an important question for practitioners to answer. It's an interesting th thought process. I, I have to admit, I'm not very well versed in the de, uh, the relative size scale. So I've, I tried a bit of an experiment this spring of estimating a bunch of notable avalanches from last winter on the relative size. And I'm, I'd love an American avalanche practitioner to kind of walk me through it. But I think what's useful about it is it's important for, say, a hazard mitigation perspective to know how much of the start zone is actually released. And just that, that alone is useful information. Like is the entire start zone released or do I still have, you know, 50% of it sitting up there? So to me, that would be tied in with that relative scale, but would, is that how you see that? Or is there a, a different component that I'm missing there? Um, uh, no, but it, it, you bring up something that's been really uh, started to fascinate me and that I, I've just learned in the last uh, uh, 10 or so years. I used to think when you see a really big deposit that the start zone was cleared out. And um, uh, if you look at the one that uh, hit by the or hit the highway just near the Lanark shed, uh, January 18th, uh, I don't know, 2011, 2014, or something like that, the uh, there's this big deposit, and highway happened to be open and uh, ran across the highway. Well, sorry, the powder cloud ran across the highway uh, into the creek, and so they flew up to the start zone, and 10% had released. So a big deposit. <laughs> Or a big avalanche with a big deposit doesn't mean that the start zone's cleared out. And so, and 10 years ago, I thought a big deposit meant the start zone was cleared out. And uh, there was a presentation just down at, uh, at Breckenridge at the Seesaw from Alaska, where there was, again, this huge deposit that came up and ran up to the, the walls of some houses. And they went up to the start zone, and they figured 30% of the start zone had released and produced a, what everyone would consider was a historic deposit. But um, so, yeah, I think it's quite interesting that we uh, uh, not underestimate or not overestimate how much of the start zone is released and that we start paying more attention to the hang fire or unreleased snow that's uh, that's up there. It is. It's such a quandary because you have such a 
variability in how far a deposit will run depending on like moisture content and that sort of thing. And it's really easy to underestimate how much is released. As you say, I recall being on a night shift on the highway and having a very sizable deposit on the highway and having to make the decision of getting, and this was after avalanche control um, with Gazex and having to make the decision of getting a maintenance co- contractor in there to remove that deposit um, and looking at this amount of mass and being like, there's no way that it's not all gone. Like this is just the, almost the biggest avalanche I've seen on the road here. And uh, sure enough, the following day, I think 60% of it had released or something like that. So there was plenty of snow remaining up there. Um, I mean, I will add, we weren't able to get the rest of that snow to go with helicopter control. It was quite stubbornly adhered to the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> I waited another month before we were able to get it. But anyway, it's interesting to think that all that time, uh, I was thinking we had completely cleared it out. And, and perhaps that's a factor of these deeper persistent weak layers where you can have like a small portion of the start zone go. If your weak layer is down a meter or so, it'll still be a pretty significant deposit. Yes. Yeah. I was wondering, just staying on the size thing for a while, when, when you did that uh, survey on uh, practitioners sizing avalanches, what was your impression on the use of half sizes uh, versus not? That's, uh, I guess, controversial. And, I, and I've, um, if we're underestimating, and I think we're underestimating so seriously, that would seem to say, why bother with half sizes? But on the other hand, they're quite um, entrenched. And as you get up to the larger avalanches, the threes, the fours, uh, that there's a big difference there between a three, a three and a half, and a four. Uh, so uh, that becomes more feasible. Um, but I think we use half sizes in two different ways. We use it when it's in between, which is the the definition that's in ogres. And we also use when there's larger uncertainty. I've, um, I mean, I've been fortunate to work a lot with backcountry guiding operations. And, uh, and like I say, when they're flying back and you're looking at something a kilometer away, they really often use a half size. And I think when they say two and a half, they mean it's between a two and a three. Um, so we, we, and our recording systems aren't really good for recording two to three for a single avalanche, but the, um, um, but I think that's one of the ways that we use half sizes. So like an expression of our uncertainty then? Yes. Yeah. Because if we say 2-3 or whatever, then our recording systems don't allow us to do it. But that's what it really is. And no, normally we report uncertainty by reporting a range. But uh, our recording systems are not very friendly to report a single avalanche that's 2-3. That's true. That is a good point. Yeah, you normally have a selection of avalanches to have a range like that. Interesting. Um, so staying with uh, some of your practitioner informed um, research that you've done here, there's a really fascinating study on uh, the hazards involved with ski cutting. And um, essentially, it came out with a paper that said, how risky is ski cutting? So what did you find there? Uh, th- th- that was absolutely uh, fascinating. I mean, I started at, uh, you know, the, the Fernie ski area and doing a lot of ski cutting. And um and there was, it was one of these things that we weren't talking about very much. We talked about the operations, we're talking about ski cutting internally, and it was widely used. But when it came to talking about it public or whatever, people um, didn't want to talk about it. And uh, when I started that, uh, there was uh, one person who I really, a senior person who I really uh, admired, uh, told me, do not talk about ski cutting. Um, don't talk about ski cutting outside our, our own little operations. And uh, and that's exactly what we did. I mean, I was almost motivated by that to uh, embrace the controversy. Um, and uh, so what we learned is that there's really a lot of ski cutting. The risk is uh, 
fairly uh, low. Now, I don't I mean, we, we have to work really hard to keep it low. And when we think we might be dealing with bigger avalanches, that's the time for explosives or just uh, just closing the area. But um, uh, we showed that there were uh, more fatalities from uh, uh, explosive work than there were from ski cutting. That's basically U.S. data. and um, But that's not a fair comparison because we use explosives when there are bigger avalanches happening uh, than we do for ski cutting. But... Um, so I think we were able to show that the ski cutting risk was um, manageable and uh, that it, we have to stay really diligent to keep the risk low, but it is a, this really, really valuable tool and uh, uh, done properly under the right snowpack and conditions. That it, uh, um, It's a really valuable tool and uh, um, and I think talking about it publicly is, is an okay thing. I'd say we have to, really. It's, it doesn't benefit anybody to keep things in the dark and it seems to me that if we do talk about it publicly we can kind of communicate that a really good size estimation expected size estimation uh is the key to starting a ski ski cutting mission if you as you said if by destructive potential on a size two we know it's bigger enough to bury injure or kill a person so if we think we're going to make an avalanche that big it seems reasonable that we should stay away from ski cutting and stick with uh explosive control or some other method Yes, yeah, um, yeah, and, and a lot of operations have, uh, uh, and I think some operations had really good uh, criteria for when to stop ski cutting and what was too big, and um, and I think since those st- uh, studies, um, there, um, a number of operations have developed better procedures for ski cutting, and uh, um, both based on if you think it's going to be a size two, then uh, look, look at another alternative, maybe explosives for skiers. And um, and also the the procedures have really improved. The one that I particularly like is when you're doing a control route and you get all all set to ski cut. Just before you, and the ski cutter enters the start zone, you look each other in the eye and say, "Well, are you sure this is low risk?" And if you both nod your heads, okay. And if one person hesitates or whatever, that's okay. Cute. <laughs> uh, you better leave that closed and try an alternative method. And, and that simple communication techniques and it's sort of like the arm doors and cross check that you see them doing on airplanes and whatever where they have a second person uh, just check your work uh, and that and those that sort of a review even if it's sort of a very quick and prompt uh, review on site I think is that independent opinion is is really valuable and uh, to keep uh, the risk of ski cutting down at a at a really acceptable level. That's probably a good point because it, it is admittedly a very fun thing to do and it's easy to get carried away when you're having fun. So if you kind of have that like eyeball to eyeball kind of cross check of, you know, is this manageable? Is this, uh, am I biting off more than I can chew here? That's probably a, a good double check to check any uncertainty yeah. within the group. And it's especially important with uh, when you've got differences between experience levels within the team too, just to make sure that nobody's yes. kind of just hanging on for dear life. Yep, um, and sometimes the the less experienced person, um, if they're uh, wide eyed and said, "Ooh, uh, that's maybe good enough uh, uh, information to uh, to back off," if whatever, if it really takes two people and often a varied experience uh, to or be really sure that it's going to be a manageable size before you ski cut. Yeah, good words, good words for sure. Um, I. Yeah, I had a really interesting time reading through all of your research that you've done here. I just wanted to keep asking you questions about some of the different uh, projects that you've worked on. I noticed that you've you've done quite a few different things on near crust faceting and slab avalanching, 
And then also, how does isolating a column and stability test compare to ski and sled stress? And so I kind of had a question. We, we had this big, as you well know, uh, rain crust from last year's atmospheric river, right? In this uh, December 1st or 4th yes. or whatever rain crust people were calling it, uh, impacted the avalanche cycles for the entire season for, for Western Canada. And so a question that came to my mind a lot last year was when we're doing a snowpack test, like a compression test, for example, with a really thick crust that has a facet layer associated with it, how is the best approach for isolating the column? Because I, I noticed that every, when you isolate the column through the crust, it almost always goes in the thick layer of facets under the crust. Yes. If you isolate the column just to the crust, then it usually goes right above the crust, which is where one would expect the avalanches to occur. But is that an accurate representation of like the stresses in a snowpack when we're performing the compression test? Yeah, so uh, facets will often grow uh, faster and sharper and weaker underneath the crust than on top of the crust. And so if you cut through the crust on your whatever test, uh, it'll often go below. And if it's a beefy crust, if it's knife hard or if it's thick and pencil hard, then usually uh, it's going to go uh, below the crust. And I was, was talking to someone from New Zealand who uh, showed me photos of avalanches releasing under big, thick, hard crusts, and I was just, you know, I, I thought, well, <laughs> well, one more thing I just learned, you know, and, and that, um, uh, but, but it's really quite rare if you have a big, solid crust for to release on the facets under the crust. Therefore, I think in most situations, it makes sense to cut to the crust, and um, let's see what the instability test tells us about the facets and slab on top of the crust. Okay, would you recommend... Uh trying both to manage some uncertainty in the results there or 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 if you suspect that the avalanche is going to fail above the crest because of its uh solidity that you would just cut to the crest um yeah so if you have the time you can go deeper and do a second test uh, below the crest and often actually the the first test we we go deeper in the first test it'll often re- sometimes release below the crust and then the second test we come back and we focus on on above the crest so that's really good information and uh, also i mean on the uh, on the infox and on the bolton whatever it's well, more so on the infox uh, it's really interesting if people are uh, how how beefy is the crust and did it release above or below the crust and that's that's really important information and, and the other thing is is the crust highly spatially variable because um if it's fairly uh, uniform, maybe it's tree line and below, and it's you know ten centimeters deep, and it's pencil to knife hard or whatever, um, then there probably aren't areas where the stress can get through the crust and trigger the facets. But if it's thick and thin, if that crust is thick and thin, um, someone might find that thin spot either with an explosive or with their skis or snowmobile, and um, uh, that's the problem. So I pay attention to how. Um, how thick and strong the crust is, but also is it highly spatially variable because the thin spots where the crust is thin and maybe the slab over top is also thin is um, where you have really the triggering potential and the surprises that are uh, potentially consequential. Absolutely. It sounds like coming back to understanding the spatial variability of your snowpack is once again, pretty important. Yeah. Right on. Um, Another piece of research that you have done that's really caught my eye is climate trends and avalanching in British Columbia. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind visiting that one for us and talking a bit about your observations. So 
with the increase in precipitation intensity that we're seeing with climate change, and there's warming, but there's also an increase in precipitation intensity, that we expect that a lot of other things like debris flows and floods to get uh, substantially worse uh, over time with climate change. But avalanches don't quite fit that. Um, we're If we look at uh, the threat to valley bottom infrastructure, like, like highways and whatever, um, as the on average, as the freezing level rises and we have more roughness in the runout zones and the early season avalanches are not running as far and wet avalanches, at least the wet avalanches that are not in gullies, um, tend not to run as far. Um, it, there's some research, and I've been part of some of it, that suggests that the, um, on average, the you know, the, the five or the 10 year return period avalanche may be receding up the slope. And that's uh, true for Europe as well, particularly studies in France and Switzerland. Um, so it's um, it's not clear that the um, there's a lot of uncertainty, and certainly we, that we're going to see an an increase um, in the avalanche hazard with warming, and we might see a, a decrease. But it's such a weak, uncertain. The research is quite uncertain that um, um, there's no way we should change our zoning lines. We shouldn't be moving our you know our white zones up the slope or anything like that because. Um, um, and one of the things we really, uh, I think, need to know is the big avalanches are often driven by multi-day snowfall. And there's been a lot of research associating climate change with six-hour rainfall, 12-hour rainfall, and there's very little associating it with three-day snowfall. And uh, three-day snowfall correlates with the big avalanches more than anything else. And uh, so there's a, uh, an important research topic that I think is kind of a gap. But... Um, so in terms of the runout to valley bottom infrastructure, um, there are a variety of studies, and I'm encouraged by the fact that they use different methods that suggest that on average we're not seeing, um, uh, if we average over a winter or whatever, over a month, um, not seeing larger avalanches reaching valley bottom. But the uh, the research doesn't well capture the individual storms. And um, if we may, if we knew more about the multi-day snowfall, um, see individual storms becoming uh, more intense and so we might have individual avalanches that are hard to forecast and, uh, and long running even though the diverse research suggests the, uh, the five and ten year runouts may be receding up the slope. And all of this says nothing about the start zone where people are out there, the recreational people are out there skiing and enjoying it because um, I think that's another research opportunity and Pascal Hagley's group uh, have uh, done a little bit of work there and uh, related to avalanche problem types. But um, the work I've done has all been on uh, um, a threat to the valley bottom infrastructure. It seems as though with climate change, we're seeing big swings in weather, more uh, perhaps extreme events, not to use an overused word, but we are having these big swings from, from warm to cold and, you know, big precip events and that sort of thing. Would that tend to lead to more persistent weak layers that, uh, perhaps could linger for the whole season and maybe produce isolated large avalanches? Right. So the, the one little bit of work, uh, that, uh, the ASAR group did on the, uh, start zone elevations, uh, showed, a uh, an increase in crusts. And, um, we, we got some, um, we got manual snow profiles, uh, going back to about 1960 from the Fidelity weather station. And we, we looked at that and, um, uh, 
and uh, we, we're seeing an increase in crust in particular around uh, 1995. And uh, the question was, is the recording standard changed? Are people recording? And there certainly have been changes in recording standards over that time. But because of the way um, Sasha Belair analyzed it, uh, I think it, the increase in crusts at starting zone elevations um, is, is real. And some of the crusts are well bonded and some of them are poorly bonded. So if we have an increase in crusts, I think it's very plausible that we're going to see an increase in poorly bonded crusts and some real forecasting challenges at start zone elevations. Interesting. I guess the only time will tell really at the end of the day, we're kind of experiencing it as it evolves. I listened to something yesterday actually on CBC that was a bit depressing that uh, there was a climate modeler that said that essentially we are currently where we thought we would be in 2030. So we're about 10 years mm -hmm. ahead of our uh, climate predictions and uh, they figure by 2030 we'll be where we expect it to be around 2060. Wow. So the, the pace of change is outstripping the forecast. So I suppose we shall see. Yeah. Um, just to, uh, switch gears a little bit there, you referred to your, your videos on, on the website, brucejameson.ca. And I just wanted to, uh, talk to you a little bit about them because I think it's an incredible resource, everything from backcountry recreationalists to avalanche practitioners, planners, and then straight up snow and avalanche science. These, these videos are incredible resources. They're a, a way that you see this being used by people. Like what, what do the library of videos mean to you? Um, well, I've been retired from teaching courses for from the CAA for five years and recreational courses for substantially longer. So, um, and I don't get good feedback as to who's using the videos, uh, and so, um, so my my motivation is first of all I I, I get a rush out of a good explanation, and uh, especially when I think back to something that I've taught poorly in the past on a course or whatever that I've if I think I've got a new better way of that really motivates me. So I, part of my motivation for the videos is to is to get an improved explanations than than I've done in the past. Um, and the other thing that's always rewarding is when someone picks it up and um, it's it gets shared or whatever, and sometimes. Uh, I've done some work uh, where the U.S. forecast centers have picked it up. And uh, so I might see, some of my videos might see, I don't know, uh, a few hundred views in uh, the first week. And I would consider that highly successful. But if, uh, if a forecast center picks it up and says, um, here's something interesting, uh, I can do five, 6,000 in the first week. And uh, which is just absolutely amazing, you know. So uh, that's another way that's rewarding. But uh, uh, I'm also just trying to get the explanation right really motivates me. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, um, I, I want to be an explainer when I grow up, you know. I, I want to be an explainer like Bruce Tremper. And uh, so, so that, that's its own motivation, even if the, the particular video isn't popular. Well, they're, they're such an incredible resource that I just wanted to sort of point out to people that like they're very well spoken, they're very clear, and uh, they're, they have excellent uh, explanations with, with images, which we all learn so well from. Maybe it ties back to your being a very practical person and tied towards the practitioner. Um, I think they're a huge resource, so maybe that's not a question. But anyway, nice work, and thank you. <laughs> yeah, and thanks, because I'm, I'm kind of a... Um, in terms of promoting them, I'm, I'm kind of... Um, I don't know. I uh, I don't know how to do it, and so I'm relying on, on other people. And um, but I just last winter I started uh, a few animations, and they're very cheesy and amateurish or whatever. But uh, at the uh, Colorado Snow and Avalanche Workshop, uh, people are 
talking about my animations. Can you make this online? I want to use this in my Avalanche course. And uh, uh, I'm really, really jazzed about that. I'm really excited. And so I'm going to take uh, one in particular, my animations that's been requested um, a bunch at the uh, Colorado Snow and Avalanche workshop. And I'm, I'm just going to make that one downloadable. So it's just a little 15 second thing that they can plug into their Avalanche courses. And Oh, that's awesome. What a resource, because I think that we're all visual learners and there's so much, I think about it, teaching entry-level avalanche courses, there's just so much information for people to absorb and it can be a bit of a death by PowerPoint type situation. Yes. So yeah. to have a, a, a well-explained uh, video or a, a animation, I'm sure would be quite helpful. Yeah. And, uh, and so when I, I was uh, helping, uh, there was a team of people updating the the uh, particularly the level two curriculum um, a, a few years back, and I was um, part of that team there. And uh, so they, I know that uh, some of the, these videos have been included on the uh, um, uh, for the level two current level two courses. So that's uh, and that's really rewarding to uh, see that. It seems like these, some of these uh, videos have given you the opportunity to work with f other folks from within the industry too. Hey, I noticed uh, we most recently did one with Ian Stewart-Patterson, who's a real wealth of knowledge. And then uh, there's a really interesting one about trade-offs for avalanche operations with John Stimbaris, amongst others. So yep. um, quite a diverse group of people that you're working with. Yeah, and I have a couple coming up for this winter where there are, uh, again, some uh, one with uh, Carl Berkland. There I want to... Um, animate and look at just uh, an update on uh, how dry snow avalanches release um, and to really reach a wide audience with it. I think there's some really good resources out there that are a little bit narrow in their audience in which we're going to try and expand the audience. And then I'm uh, I'm talking to uh, Simon Horton about a two-part one on surface horror that'll include everything from the, how the how we see it in the field, how the old dogs with sore knees see surface horror and uh, talk about it, but also uh, with the uh, the modeling and how what modeling and how that fits into our, our current decision-making. Awesome. What a wealth of uh, knowledge for us all to learn from. Yeah, and it's great working with other people and younger people and because uh, everyone's younger than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I had thrown this... Uh to a few friends and sort of things to ask for some questions just to see, obviously everybody's interested in what you have to, to share. And one of the people that I spoke with was asking, what's your take on the future of the avalanche industry in North America? It seems as though we're moving towards a lot of remote avalanche control and radar and that sort of thing. So what, what do you see as the, the future of the avalanche industry here in Western Canada? Well, I, I think there's some encouraging technology, and as well as the decision processes, you know, which is mainly, um, you know, the based on the conceptual model for avalanche hazard. And uh, uh, Colin Zacharias has developed one for recreational people, and we have this workflow for the Infwex. I think that's all really important stuff, and we were uh, see more things um, on, um, you know, uh, ultrasound and de detecting avalanches that is uh, really promising, but uh, I think we're still gonna need a lot of, still a lot of experienced people in the field. The The field experience is gonna continue to be really important and, and particularly in, in dealing with the exceptions. And uh, I remember one um, avalanche we went to uh, on the ASARC crew and uh, where some skier got triggered and pushed against a tree and minor injuries and, um, and the uh, we came back and did some measurements and fraction line profile while we were talking about it to the guides afterward and the oldest guide in the room kind of rubbed the stubble on his chin and said hmm, 
same slope caught me 15 years ago. And so I, I think that, uh, yeah, I hope we don't ever lose the, well, we're, we're getting better at some things like technology and decision systems. Um, I think that uh, experience is going to continue to be really, really important. That's a good point. It's a good reminder. There's no rush uh, for people to, you know, try to outsmart the avalanche. You just have to build that experience respectfully and slowly. And uh, once again, there's old guides and bold guides, but not usually both. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Good point. Well, I, I appreciate you uh, spending the time having a conversation. Um, Bruce has been really fascinating. Definitely could keep asking you questions for, for ages. Um, it's an incredible body of research and, uh, really thank you for your contributions. Um, you were recognized in 2021 by Av- Avalanche Canada with the Gord Ritchie service award, uh, for decades of contribution. So yeah, on behalf of everyone, thank you so much. Oh, th- thanks very much, Don. This is a, a great opportunity and I, I, I never get tired of talking about snow and avalanches. So thank you. Right on. Well, fantastic. I was uh, thinking we could hopefully do this again. Maybe some more question and answer type stuff. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm keen. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, that was a great conversation that just covered a fraction of the research and publications of Dr. Bruce Jameson. Thank you, Bruce, for joining me. And thank you all for listening. I highly recommend checking out brucejameson.ca for a bunch of informative videos for snow nerds of any level. This podcast is all about sharing stories, knowledge, and news. So if you have suggestions or questions for future episodes, please contact us. You can do that on our website at www.theavalanchehour.com, where you can also find all our past episodes. You can also find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, tell a friend and please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts really help spread the show. If you want to help support the podcast, there's a new donate button on theavalanchehour.com. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Head over to MikeT.com and check out some of Mike's work. Music for this episode was I Lost My Voice by my good buddy Gravy and used with permission from the artist. Thanks Gravy for the conversation and for the tunes. Check out more of his music on Spotify or wherever else you get your music. This episode was produced by Wes Gregg. Thanks Wes. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.